like to invite you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. This is the final installment in our journey through the book of 1 Peter. On June 1st, 2015, Katie, a 29-year-old American, traveled to South Africa. While she was there, in Johannesburg, she decided to visit a lion park. And so she arrived at the lion park, and she was able to acquire a tour guide who would take her in an SUV and drive through the park and hopefully be able to see some lions close up. Warnings were given to them directly, and then there were signs posted about making sure to keep your windows closed at all times. I've read numerous reports and news accounts of this incident, but apparently what happened is as the SUV was traveling through the animal park, they happened upon two lions that were resting placidly next to the path. About 10 feet away from the vehicle, there was a male and a female lion, and and so the, the tour guide stopped, and Katie, seeing these animals very close and resting very quietly, she rolled down her window to get a better picture of them. As she was doing this, the lions, one of the lions, the female, stood up suddenly, approached the vehicle, she was about three feet away now, and just stood staring at the open window for a number of seconds. Then suddenly, the lion leaped at the vehicle, reached in, and attacked Katie. Got back down out of the vehicle, waited a couple seconds, and then a second attack followed. The park officials rushed to the scene. Within a matter of minutes, they were there to try to uh, scare the lions away, and they, they shooed the lions away, but there was nothing that they could have done for Katie in that process. And so you see a tragedy happen, and you wonder, you know, what, what could have prevented it? And, and really what you had is you had a young woman who, who did not heed the warnings that were given. Maybe a moment's hesitation, perhaps even a lack of comprehension of the actual danger that she was in. And tragically, a life, a young life, was ended. As Peter concludes his letter to the churches of Asia Minor, he graphically illustrates the dangers facing the church by warning with these familiar words, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Remember, Peter had his own experience with this ferocious enemy. Remember when Jesus warned him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. And so today I want to look at the larger context of Satan's attack on the church because that's what Peter is writing about. And specifically as he gets to the end of this passage, we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual journey with dangers. Remember, we are pilgrims. We're living as pilgrims. This world is not our home. And when we say this world is not our home, it's not just we're on vacation. It's that we're on safari. 
that we're in dangerous territory and it can be beautiful and it can be rewarding and there's work to be done and we know all of that is in front of us, but the dangers are real. And so as Peter wraps up the conclusion of his letter, the title of the message this morning is Final Warnings for Our Pilgrimage. Final Warnings for Our Pilgrimage. First warning is this, number one, be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility. And so the theme in verses 5 through 7 is clearly humility. You're going to see that as we unfold that in just a moment. And the warning is a real warning. If you're not clothed with humility, if you allow pride to to be alive inside of you, here's the real and sobering warning, that God resists the proud. God will resist you. God will be opposed to you as you operate with pride unchecked in your life. The problem with pride and humility, however, is that it's a little bit subjective and a little bit elusive exactly what it is and where it shows up. And so if I were to ask you right now, uh, you know, how many of you are, are the, are, you know, I mean, so here's Jesus as the ultimate example of humility and how many of you have arrived and none of us would raise our hands. And if I said, you know, how many of you are just overwhelmed by pride and you're just giving into it and you're just embracing it and, and you're a zero on the humility meter, probably no one would raise their hands. So where are we? And how do you determine that? And how do you make those kinds of distinctions? And I believe what Peter does here is he gives two clear symptoms of pride. This danger of pride that is very present and it comes with these devastating remarks about God being opposed to us. The first symptom of pride is a lack of submissiveness to authority. You need to obey better. I, I put it that way to let it have a little bit of emotional impact. You need to obey better. How does that make you feel? And that proves Peter's point. That our pride begins to to step up and it begins to say, well, wait a second. Are are you sure I have to? And well, you know, being obedient is is kind of a negative thing. And and I'd rather just kind of be, be kind of guided with wisdom than be told that which I should do. To be subject or subjected is just not something that I really embrace with my whole heart. But notice in verse 5, Peter says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And the word submit here is the word that means to obey. And it's not just external obedience. I think we all understand this. It's a kind of submission that involves recognizing leadership structures with appropriate respect. And by the way, I think this is something that at times Peter struggled with. If you, if you know his story in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 16, it, it, there's an account where it says, from that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And so Jesus is previewing his coming death. Peter hears this. And I want you just to imagine this. Peter hears this, walks up to Jesus and says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Takes Jesus aside, 
puts his arm around him and rebukes him. Rebukes him. Lord, no, you've got it wrong. I'll, I'll, I'll quote the words of, of Peter. Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto me. Lord, you've got it wrong. Get this thinking out of your head. This is not positive. Correlate that with 1 Timothy 5, verse 1, where Paul admonishes Timothy, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And here you have Peter rebuking Jesus as Christ was predicting his suffering and death. As it relates to our text, however, the big question here is, and commentators wrestle with this, and I've wrestled with this, but the question is, does elder mean pastor, or does it just mean an older person? In other words, is it saying younger people need to be respectful and submissive to older people, or is it specifically in the context of pastors? And I don't have the time to argue all of this out, but I believe in the context, as we've just seen at the beginning of chapter 5, there's an admonition to elders, to pastors, to lead and shepherd the flock of God, and there is a warning that they lead in the right way. That they don't lord it over the flock of God, that they're gentle leaders. And then Peter turns it around and says, Now likewise you who are younger... Submit to your elders, your pastors. And so I believe that's what it's talking about. Young people are specifically singled out as a demographic that need to be reminded to be submissive to church leaders. And so just a moment ago, I told you, you need to obey better. And now I'm going to say, you young people need to obey better. How many of you are like, oh, that's like music to my soul? I mean, no, so all the faculty are like, yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it just, and, and so just again, in the very fact that, that there's something within us that says, well, wait a second, I can be just as, you know, spirit-filled as, we, we understand that. But in the words of David, as one who was young and is now old, I will say to you, I know how this feels. I know how it feels to sit there and be saying, I, could, I, I would do this this way. I would choose this path. I, and, and the kind of pride that is a part of our thinking as we do that. And so as leaders are leading and shepherds are shepherding, we should have a desire in our life to, to follow in a way that will, will give them joy in the ministry that God has given them. This is a privilege and an opportunity, and it's, and it's one that, that is not just for young people, unless you think that Peter's just singling out those that are, that are kind of beginning adulthood. He, he spreads it out to everyone. In verse 5, it continues. He says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And so here's the point. The unmistakable test of humility for all believers is submission. But what does it mean when it says submitting to one another? All of you be subject to one another. And this is a phrase that is used elsewhere in Scripture. Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. There's been teaching, a lot of teaching on this, and it's kind of been a, a hot button as far as roles within the church and within the family. And 
And, and I would commend to you, I don't have time to unfold the argumentation of it here, but I would commend to you an article uh, by Wayne Grudem, uh, The Myth of Mutual Submission. But here's the basic point, is that when Scripture tells us to submit to one another, it is not saying everyone submit to everyone. If you understand the book of Ephesians, as Paul gives that admonition to submit to yourselves, uh, submit to one another, you understand that's in the context of him dealing with relationships. And he's already mentioned, wives, submit to your husbands, and children, obey your parents, and servants, obey your masters. And so here's the context. And so when Paul says, submit to one another, he's saying, Every single believer has authority structures in their life, and we need to have a heart and a life of submission. It doesn't mean that everyone submits to everyone, and so therefore authority is erased because, hey, we're all just supposed to be submitting equally. So the Bible doesn't teach that kind of submission, but rather everyone needs to submit to their authority. And so right now, every single person in this room has authorities in our lives. Every one of us. And so if you want to test your pride, the kind of pride that God opposes, ask yourself the question, how do I do with the topic of submission, with respect, with following God-ordained leadership in my life? They're not going to be perfect, and we all understand that. But my heart needs to be humble before the Lord, and it's manifest in these kinds of relationships. The second clear symptom of pride is a lack of casting all your cares on the Lord. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Care here is a word for anxiety or worry. But how is that a symptom of pride? Well, as... One commentator says, he says, worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust is in themselves. And so here's the definition of worry, anxiety, or care that you keep. The definition is that worry is taking your own problems to yourself. Worry is praying to your own mind over and over and over again. And it's a symptom of pride because it cuts God out of the process as if he has no power or no grace to offer you, thinking it belongs to yourself alone. But then we also see in here, Peter doesn't just warn about this, he gives the solution to pride, and the solution is to clothe ourselves with humility. Clothe ourselves with humility. So what does this mean? Well, the first thing we would understand is that it means that you're not born with it. Okay, this isn't, this isn't a kind of humility that's natural for us as believers. In Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul says, Put on, therefore, humbleness of mind. How do you put on humility? Well, we're given an example. An example of Jesus Christ. And we've heard... Many times, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. But I want to just highlight the factors in here that illustrate what Jesus is doing and how we can adopt that as well. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He made himself of no reputation. 
Boy, isn't that the opposite of what we try to do sometimes? We want to make ourselves of reputation. Jesus did not do that. He took upon him the form of a servant. I'm going to serve. I'm going to be lowly. In fact, I'm going to serve maybe even behind the scenes. And if nobody ever says, hey, thank you to the people that serve behind the scenes, I'm going to be just fine with that. I'm going to serve in small ways, and I'm going to view myself as a servant. I've heard it said before that it's easy to think of yourself as a servant until somebody else treats you like one. He humbled himself. And then we see that Jesus became obedient. Obedient. And so when we humble ourselves in submission to our leaders and casting our cares upon the Lord, some amazing things happen. We see that God gives us his grace. Verse 5 and 6, God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. We have his resources. We have his strength. We have his security and his assurance. And and then verse 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. And I think it's so helpful to think of, about, of it like this. As we, as we humble ourselves and we submit to leadership, as we cast our burdens and our cares and our worries upon the Lord and we refuse to pray to our own mind over and over again, we actually understand that we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's not that leader who's hard for me to submit to. It's God who I'm humbling myself under. It's him who I'm following. It's him who I'm trusting to see me through this. And then at the end of that verse, it says that he may exalt you in due time. God is in control of your reputation. God is in control of your thriving. And then we see that God cares for us. And we don't just cast our cares upon him and hope for the best. We give our burdens to a God who cares. If I told you that God cares about your burdens more than you do, you might, you might say, I, I don't know if anyone really cares more than I do about this, this thing, this pressure, this, this, this potential you know, roadblock, this difficulty, this trial, this brokenness. I don't know if anyone is touched more by that, by that than I am, yet God is. He cares for you with a heart that only could belong to God. And so first of all, as pilgrims, be clothed with humility. And second, be steadfast in faith. Now I think we're all familiar with the need as we see this warning about the devil walking about as a roaring lion. I think we're all familiar with the need to be sober, to be alert, to be clear-headed, to be vigilant, that is to be watchful. But, but I think what needs a little bit more attention is what the devil wants to do to us. It says here that he's seeking to devour. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. This word means to destroy completely. It is the picture of the completed process of eating, complete with being swallowed. 
He does not want to take a nibble out of you. He does not want to just simply scare you or harm you or injure you. He wants to devour you and me. And so perhaps we can learn something about about this concept from the time that Satan attempted to devour Peter. Remember in Luke chapter 22, Jesus came to Peter and said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so here is Satan desiring to have Peter that he may sift him, that he may destroy him. So what happened? Did Peter heed Jesus' warning and Jesus actually told him how it was going to happen? You're going to deny me three times. And, And Peter said... I will never deny you. A little bit later, as Jesus is being tried, Peter is sitting by the fire, and a girl comes up and and says, Hey, aren't aren't you one of his followers? And Peter says, Woman, I know him not. A little bit later, a man came up, asked a similar question. Man, I am not. And then a third time, about an hour later, and the guy said, aren't you a Galilean? And he says, man, I know not what thou sayest. And so three times he denied Jesus. And so Peter failed big time. And so is this what it means by being devoured? Was he devoured at that moment? Is this the kind of fall that Peter is warning us about? Well, I think there's more to the story. It appears that Jesus was actually warning Peter about what happens next. Satan has desired to have you, plural. And I I want you to, I think the words is important, and commentators have struggled with this and disagreed, but but I believe as we understand it in context, Jesus says, Satan has desired to have you guys, plural, The disciples, he's speaking, that he may sift you all as wheat. And then Jesus says, but Peter, I have prayed for thee, for you, singular, that your singular faith may not fail. And when you, singular, are converted or returned, strengthen the brethren. And so I believe that sifting as wheat in connection with this warning from Jesus has the concept of here's, here's the disciples and, and Satan's desire was to take them like, like wheat in a sifter, shake it around and let the wind scatter them, to separate them, to remove them from each other. And so Jesus' prayer for Peter was answered when Peter repented before God and then returned to his brothers to continue the work of Christ. And so, how do we resist the devil? Verse 9, it tells us this. It says, whom resist? Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And so, here's the point. We resist the devil by remaining steadfast in the faith. In the context of suffering in 1 Peter in ostracism and the increasing hostility of the culture around them, the temptations to distance ourselves from biblical Christianity, from Christ-preaching, gospel-preaching churches, that temptation is an increasing pressure. Is Christianity worth it? Is it 
worth being an outsider? Is it worth it to be canceled by our culture? To have the, the pressure that is being placed upon us in a very real way. And so one commentator says this, the opposition the Christians face from their non-Christian contemporaries is not something they can avoid by modifying their behavior or adapting their beliefs in such a way as to escape opposition. Only by completely abandoning the gospel and the community shaped by it, only by submitting to the satanic forces that stand in total opposition to God can they escape the persecution they otherwise face. And so when we fail... When we've faltered, when there's controversy, like, dare I say, masks, and Christians have passionate different views on some of these things, when there's hurts, when the culture comes down heavy on us, we need to be vigilant in those moments because the devil wants to scatter us like wheat flour in the breeze. He doesn't want us assembled with the body of Christ. He doesn't want us under the headship of Jesus. He doesn't want us under the leadership that Christ has provided to watch for our souls. He wants us to be disillusioned and he wants us to think that we can have faith on our own out there. And, and, as, and as we think we're making our choice, we are being devoured in that moment. Steadfast in faith means that we are committed to Christ. We're committed to biblical Christianity. We're committed to our local church, our gospel-preaching local church. And so, when you're wavering, be warned. The lion wants to devour you. And sometimes we need to be reminded that we're not the only ones that are facing this. I don't have time to explain to you what is happening around the globe today. But if you get your eyes up off of just our land and our circumstances, many, many thousands and thousands of Christians and churches have it far worse than us. They are enduring suffering. The same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren in the world. So we are to live as pilgrims, and Peter's final warnings are be clothed with humility, be steadfast in faith, and finally be strengthened by grace. Peter ends his letter with a typical closing and I believe with some very intentional and timely reminders about God's grace. At her funeral, Katie's sister called her fearless. She said this, her flaw was that she was a five foot four, 90 pound woman, but deep down she believed she was a six foot four, 250 pound man. But would being bigger have mattered in the face of a ferocious lion attack at point-blank range? Sometimes I think as Christians, we think to ourselves, I can handle this. I'm strong enough. I will never walk away from the faith. I will never be too embarrassed to come back to my Christian community. I will never get enamored with certain aspects of our culture so that I begin believing what they say God is as opposed to what Scripture says God is. I will never do that. I'm, I'm too strong for that. I'm, I'm, I'm a Bible college student. I'm, I'm, I'm faithful in my church right now. I've been raised correctly. I've got a pretty good perspective on life. And, 
And it doesn't matter if you're five foot four and 90 pounds or whether you're six foot four and 250 pounds. It's not about our own strength. It's about God's grace. Verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. We don't establish ourselves, strengthen ourselves, and, and settle ourselves. We go to God and His grace and we believe Him and we obey Him and we follow Him and we're committed to Him and we're steadfast for Him. And His grace works in us and it's about Him and His glory. Verse 11, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends in verses 12 through 14 with just a couple bullet points of talking about people, but I believe in these phrases, in these verses, we've got an indication of some of the additional resources in God's grace. We've got God's word to exhort us, verse 12, by Silvanus, which I believe is a Latin spelling of Silas, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose. I have written briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Peter says at the end of his letter that his purpose was to exhort us about the true grace in which we stand. The whole letter is about this theme of God's grace. It's a part of what God is doing in the pilgrimage of life. Verse 13, we have God's elected churches to belong to. The church that is at Babylon, which is probably Rome, where Peter was writing from, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, John Mark, my son in the faith. So don't think of your local church in human terms. It is chosen by God. It is built by Christ. It is beautiful in the sight of God. Belong. We have God's family to unite with in love. Greet one another with a kiss of charity. The word charity is agape. It is love. And that is just a token, a, a kiss in that context, a handshake or a hug in our context today. A warm greeting is a token that represents the reality of our love. Be unified in that way. And then we have God's peace to encourage us. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And one noteworthy fact that came out of the investigation of the Alliant attack is that the notice warning about keeping the windows closed was found on the passenger side seat of the vehicle. This morning, we just walked through some of Peter's final warnings for our pilgrimage, and we can take them to heart. Or we can set them down and go on our way. Be clothed with humility. Be steadfast in faith. Be strengthened by grace. Will you heed those today? Lord, would you help us to take your word, welcome it into our hearts and lives, and that we would be pilgrims that please you, that would be effective servants in this age. We're not overwhelmed, we're not overcome. But we are warned. We're warned that as we live as servants, that there's dangers, but there's also so many, so many opportunities by your grace to live for you and to represent you on this earth, to be joined with our brothers and sisters, to be effectively uh, harvesters until you return. We commit all of this to you in Christ's precious name. Amen.